Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as light in the world, holding forth the word of life. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell. Dr. John G. Mitchell often asked a question that is still inscribed on the library wall on the campus of Multnomah University. He asked it of every class and challenged every student with it. Don't you folks ever read your Bibles? It is quite evident that he did. Dr. Mitchell once forgot his Bible in his office when he arrived to teach a graduate-level class on the Minor Prophets. Without a pause, he quoted the scripture for the day, word for word, from memory. Dr. Mitchell knew his Bible. Many were blessed by his Bible teaching, and today we invite you to share in those blessings by listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. The name of our study, The Unchanging Word, highlights the fact that God's Word has not changed. What God reveals in His written Word was true in the past, is still true today, and will be true tomorrow. The truth in God's Word was, is, and always will be true. God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary, life that never ends. Dr. Mitchell speaks of our Savior in his utter humiliation to the point of death and he gives us a short overview of verses 5 through 11. Well, the Unchanging Word Bible broadcast is in Philippians chapter 2. Dr. Mitchell explains the working out of one's salvation, not the working for salvation. By grace we are saved through faith, and that by grace through faith salvation is the gift of God. It is not the work of a man. The Apostle Paul, in verses 12 through 16, makes application for the believer as to his attitude and action in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Well, Dr. Mitchell speaks of Christ as our pattern. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And the Lord Jesus Christ is giving to us as the example, the pattern, if you please, in humiliation and exaltation. And in verses 6 to 8, we had his humiliation. We had, we had the nature of his humiliation, of him laying aside his glory and coming down into the human race, taking his place in the human race. And we had the, the manner of his humiliation. He became a slave, was found in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. And then we have the extent of his humiliation, the cross. He not only humbled himself to death, but even the death of the cross. You see, the cross carries a stigma. The cross is an accursed thing. Our Savior couldn't have gone any further down to lift sinful man up. I don't care how far down a man is in his sin. 
the grace of God can reach him. The Lord Jesus went the whole way from the throne of God to a cross of shame. He became an accursed thing. I repeat it again, man cannot measure the distance from the throne of God to the cross of Calvary. That this one who was in the form of God thought it not a thing to be held on to, laid aside his glory, was submissive to his Father's will, took his place in humanity, and they crucified him. They weren't satisfied to just stone him. This they tried to do. No, he must go beyond that. The vilest, lowest form of death was crucifixion. Jesus Christ became an accursed thing that you and I might be redeemed from sin and fitted for the presence of God. And this one who men put on a cross, God raised from the dead and exalted him to his own right hand and gave him a name that's above every name, at the name of Jesus. Oh, don't you love it? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That this Jesus who was an accursed thing God has exalted above all principality and power, above all the angelic hosts, above all created intelligence. He's been exalted to the right hand of God, to the glory of God the Father. And every knee is going to bow. Whether you believe it or not, my friend, every knee, your knees, whether you're a Christian or not, Every knee is going to bow and acknowledge that this Jesus who men put on a cross, who died for your sins and was buried, was raised from the dead. Every knee is going to bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That this man, Jesus, was glorified with all the glory of the omnipotent God. This is universal recognition not universal reconciliation. The Bible doesn't teach such a thing. But the Bible does teach universal recognition that this Jesus, who men have spurned, is Lord. And they're going to acknowledge that to the glory of God, the Father. I tell you, my friend, it's an amazing thing. I wish in some way I could put into words just the way I feel about this portion of Scripture from verse 5 down through verse 11. All the distance that Jesus traveled, this one worshipped by angelic beings, the righteous Son of God, meeting all the demands of the righteous, holy character of God so that you and I might be redeemed and forgiven and freed from death given eternal life and fitted to come into the very presence of the omnipotent God and come there as his children to live eternally with him. I say, what a plan of redemption is this? No man could have worked such a plan out. And when men talk to me about Jesus being just a man, I generally ask the question, with all the 
added knowledge we have down through the centuries and our boasted, shall, shall I say, the way we boast about our academic preeminence, our scholarship, our scientific research. Tell me, tell me, tell me, has the world produced another one like Jesus with 1,900 years of experience, we can't produce another Jesus? Why not? Because there is not another Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is only one Jesus, and there's only one Savior. And he came, he laid aside his glory. This one worshiped by angelic beings took his place as a man because he loved you because he loved me. And he satisfied, I repeat this, he satisfied, perfectly satisfied, the holy, righteous character of God, made all the holy justice of God, and made it possible for God to take you and me and cleanse us from sin and fit us for his presence and welcome us into glory as his children, the object of his love and of his devotion. I can't for the life of me understand why people don't accept a Savior. Neither can I understand why we Christians, and I'm a Christian with the rest of you, in spite of all our frailty and weaknesses and failures, we're still the objects of his love. Then why don't we love each other? Why don't we manifest that love? Why don't we come to that place of real humility, not only of mind but of life? and manifest that divine love which has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And let his name be extolled and exalted among men. Now this is the pattern. Remember, he's been talking to these believers at Philippi, being the same mind, having one mind. Then he said, let the mind of Christ, and this is the mind of Christ, in humiliation and then exaltation. Now we have the, for the rest of the chapter, we have the outworking of the pattern in verses 12 to 30. The outworking of the pattern in the believer. And you're going to find, I'm going to be very frank with you, you're going to find he gives to us through the chapter three men who revealed the outworking of the pattern of our Savior. And one was Paul, and the other is Timothy, and the third one is Epaphroditus. And if it can be worked out in these men, it can be worked out in you and in me. Now, first of all, verses 12 to 16, we have the believer's responsibility. Now, he picks up the outworking of the pattern in you and in me. Remember, the Lord Jesus was the pattern in humility and exaltation. Now, first of all, the believer's responsibility is in verses 12 to 16. And I'm breaking it down into three or four things. And first of all, we have our privilege in verses 12 to 13. Now, verse 12 and 13. Let me read these two verses concerning our privilege. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
Now let me stop here for a moment. I do this because there are those who have taken this portion of Scripture and have tried to make it that we have to work for our salvation. Now, it does not say that. Now, let's be clear about it. Wherefore, my beloved, he's talking to Christians. In fact, in the very first chapter, you remember, he talks to the saints at Philippi. These are not unsaved men and women. These are Christians. They're saints. So he writes to them and says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. When I was with you, you were open to the word of God, you obeyed the word of God, and you even suffered for the word of God. Whether I'm present or absent, I'm so glad that you, my beloved fellow Christians, uh, are obeying the word of God. But now he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, let me just suggest this. He did not say, it does not say work for your salvation because they're already saved. In fact, it's got to be the salvation must be in you before it can be worked out. It's a personal salvation. You notice? Work out your own salvation. You've already received a salvation from God, a personal salvation. Now work it out. Or in other words, let your, this new life you have in Christ, let it be manifested. You see, it's a cooperation with God, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If God has not worked in you a work of salvation, it can't be worked out. See, this salvation, by the way, is entirely of God. It's entirely of God. It begins with God. It's continued by God. It's going to be completed by God. It's the will of God operating in a believer's life. The indwelling Spirit of God eternal God living, working in the believer. And what he works in us is bound to be worked out. Now, let me I remind you, I said a while ago in one of my preceding lessons, dealing with this question of humility, humility of mind produces humbleness in life. Humility of life. If it's not in you, it'll not be worked out through you. It's folly for me to talk about humility. And it's, it's taught in the scriptures. But my life should also manifest that same humility. And if I'm humble in mind, I'll be humble in life. If I'm proud in my, in my mind, I'll be proud in my life. And my friend, I needn't, I needn't belay the fact or the point because it's so obvious. It's, it's manifested everywhere. Not only in the world, but it's manifested among Christians. It's manifested among, among preachers. It's manifested among God's people everywhere. 
genuine humility can only come from humbleness of mind. And I can only receive that because God works it in me. You remember, allow me to quote again from Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus said, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Learn of me, for I am meek. The Lord Jesus is our pattern of meekness, of humility. Our Lord could say, unless you become as a little child. Humility is greatness in the kingdom of God. It's not something you can work up. And how often we hear Christians say, dear Lord, keep me humble. Well, I, I don't know whether they're humble or not to start with. But I would say this, uh, if you would say to the Lord, Lord, keep me humble, he'll sure humble you. Don't misunderstand me. Uh, if you want God to answer your prayers, he'll sure humble you. But see, humility of life is the product of something. Humility of life is being humble in mind and letting the Lord doing the job through you. We recognize our frailty. We recognize our weakness. We recognize that we can't live a humble life. You and I well know that humility is a, is a fruit of the Spirit. Humility is a supernatural thing. In our, in our natural beings, in our own personalities, in our natural makeup, we're all proud. One way or another, we're proud. This causes a great, great deal of trouble. What? Pride. What caused Satan to fall? Causes young preachers to fail God? It causes all of us once in a while. We do things we shouldn't do. Why? Because of pride. We'll not confess we did it wrong. We wrong somebody and we, we try to battle the thing through so, they won't, so they'll forget it. No, there's no humility. And you find it in preaching too. You can become, I remind myself of the man who was preaching and he gave a very good message one morning and when he got off the platform, a lady said to him, oh, pastor, that was the greatest message I've ever heard. And he said, yes, lady, Satan told me that before I left the platform. Oh, it's so easy to become egotistical, so easy to become full of self-will. But let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he said, here, wherefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who worketh in you. Here is cooperation. I repeat it, cooperation with God. God works it in you. And as you yield your will to the Lord, he works it out through you. See, it's supernatural life. And how is it to be done? In fear and trembling. Now, does that mean to be scared? Oh, no, oh, no. Fear lest we do not live to please him. Fear lest we do not have that salvation worked out through us. Fearful lest we do things that will dishonor the one who indwells us. Fear lest we dishonor Christ Jesus, the one who's on the throne. Fear lest we miss doing the will of God in our lives. That's what you have. See, it's our privilege to cooperate with God that his life, his character, his heart, his love, 
His compassion will be worked out through you and me day by day in our relationship with others, in our association and fellowship with others that manifests something of the sweetness of the wonderfulness of our Savior. To do with fear and trembling, fear lest we miss grieving the living God who loves us with an everlasting love. Now in verses 14 to 15, we have our walk in conduct, which would be a natural follow-through. What does he say? Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as light. Do all things without murmuring and disputings, that you may be harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. Why? because we're living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and so on, that talks about our service. How are we to walk? Circumspectly. We are to walk without murmurings. That's our attitude Godward. We are to walk without disputings. That's manward, you see. Our character is to be blameless to self, harmless to others, without rebuke before God. Let me go back to verse 14. Do all things without murmurings. Do you remember Israel murmured? Our Lord, uh, you remember the Lord said to them, to Moses, this people have murmured 10 times. They've murmured against me. Murmuring, murmuring, it's against the will of God being operating in your life. We murmur at circumstances. We murmur with people. We murmur because of this. We murmur because of that. We're a bunch of murmurers. And this is always Godward. You ever think of it? Is your life full of murmuring? Remember, my friend, we don't murmur against people. We murmur against God. And what about disputings? This is uh, fighting among yourselves. It's something you do among yourselves. Uh, this is what breaks up the harmony and the oneness of mind and spirit and purpose of a, of a Christian church, of a local church to which you belong. Disputings. Oh, how the Spirit of God is grieved in fact, we hold back. The very thing we want is the blessing and joy of the Lord, and we hold back. We want to see sinners saved. We want to see God's people built up. We want to see Christ glorified. And what hinders it? Fighting among ourselves, disputing, disputing, arguing about things that don't not worth anything at all. We murmur against God. And we fight among ourselves. How in the world can the Spirit of God then reveal Christ? How can this salvation be worked out? How can we cooperate with God in this wonderful, wonderful salvation if this is how we're living all the time? Uh, it's very practical. It's very, very practical. Now, I'll just leave that right here for the present. Our walk in conduct, 14 to 15, we're going to walk circumspectly, carefully, not murmuring against God, 
not fighting and disputing among ourselves. May the Lord grant that you and I will work out our salvation with fear, with trembling. We'll, we'll work it out to the glory and to the praise of our God. Now then, one final word. Please remember, you don't work for your salvation. Salvation you already have in Christ. But cooperate with God so that wonderful life in Christ will be manifested in your life without its murmurings, without its disputings. Let the other fellow do that if you want to, but as far as you're concerned, you're going to walk before God in quietness and in confidence. And this will be your strength to live to the praise of his glory. The Lord bless you today for his name's sake. Death could not hold him. Now life has a goal. Jesus is coming. We all will be whole. The life that he gives us, so rich and so free, will go on forever, eternally. Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study today. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Life begins at Calvary.